Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with support from Pratt & Whitney, committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. Dohop, revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. And Sirium, the world's most trusted source of aviation analytics. Visit Sirium.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm cranky today. It's not because there was yet another idiotic story about the, quote, carry-on baggage crisis facing America in a national magazine. And I'm not cranky because Carl Icahn, who many believe destroyed TWA, is back in the airline industry. And I'm not even cranky because football season is over. Ben Baldanza, I'm cranky because we're going cranky this week, talking to Brett Snyder, the cranky flyer. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Are you feeling cranky, Ben? Hi, Scott. Not at all. <laughs> I'm pretty upbeat, but I'm looking forward to talking with Brett and asking him why he's the cranky flyer, not the happy flyer. It's <laughs> a great question. Ben, on the happy news front, the year appears to be off to a strong start for travel, as expected. U.S. travel agencies, that includes online sellers, but not the airlines themselves, logged a record January for air ticket sales, according to Airlines Reporting Corp. That's the company that processes tickets for travel sellers. Agency sales for the month totaled $8.9 billion, up 7% from January 2023. The average domestic round-trip fare was $546, a 3% increase. Remember, that's a higher average because it's agency stuff than if you included all of the cheap tickets that airlines sell directly to consumers. ARC said it was already seeing a spike in ticket transactions to popular spring break destinations like Cancun, Miami, and Fort Lauderdale. And business travel also had a solid month with corporate travel agency settled trips increasing 7% year over year. Speaking of sales increasing, last year was a banner year for sales at Airbus, so much so that the parity between Airbus and Boeing is really eroding. In terms of orders last year, Airbus captured two-thirds of all narrow-body orders with the A320neo family and the A220. The Boeing 737 MAX got only one-third of all narrow-body orders. In terms of deliveries of all aircraft, Boeing delivered 42% compared to 58% for Airbus. At the end of January, Airbus had a record backlog of 8,599 aircraft to Boeing's backlog of 5,599 aircraft. That's roughly the same 60-40 split. For comparison, I used Sirium's fleet analyzer tool and found there are almost 25,000 Boeing and Airbus commercial jets in service today, and a majority are Boeing, 54% actually. That obviously is shifting precipitously 
unless Boeing comes up with some better products. And in the you can't make this stuff up category, United grounded five brand new Airbus A321neos because they couldn't turn off the no smoking sign. Of course, smoking is banned on flights, so why would you need to turn off the no smoking sign? Because regulations still require the signage be able to be turned off. Most everyone has applied for and received a waiver of this antiquated regulatory silliness, but United's waiver, which was last granted in 2020, didn't include the A321neo. They didn't have it then. The FAA quickly gave United a temporary waiver so it could fly these planes while a formal request is being evaluated. Just shows you there's some regulations outlive their usefulness. Yes, definitely. Great news on the strong demand, especially in the higher paid categories. That suggests a good year for at least the big guys. Yeah, it really does. And, uh, and you know, they've been saying that. Ed Bastian this past week um, said demand was, uh, was looking really good. So, you know, fingers crossed it'll be a good year for everyone. You know, and that Airbus backlog looks good. But it's almost too big. They need to step up production, I think. Yeah, I think you're right, but that's very hard to do. And um, I should have noted they they said they weren't going to get to peak delivery rate until 2026. Uh, So they've got a a ways to go and a history of um, not always meeting the the, uh, production pace that they planned. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult thing. I, I think you're right. And some of those Boeing orders may be from airlines that would have preferred to order Airbus, but couldn't get uh, slots in the production queue. Reminds me of that Yogi Bear quote. No one goes to that place anymore. <laughs> it's too crowded. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Ben, some news that hits close to home for you as a member of the JetBlue Board of Directors. On Monday last week, Joanna Garrity took over as CEO at JetBlue, and the first crisis hit before the end of the day when activist investor Carl Icahn announced he had accumulated almost a 10% stake in JetBlue and wanted a seat on the board. Mr. Icahn said he believed JetBlue stock was undervalued, and the news of his investment did spark a 20% jump in share price. By the end of the week, JetBlue agreed to have two Icahn lieutenants join the airline's board. Forty years ago, Carl Icahn took almost a 20% stake in struggling TWA. Three years later, he took the company private. He took out $469 million and saddled TWA with debt. To pay off the debt, he sold some of the crown jewel assets, most notably TWA's London Heathrow routes, to American Airlines in 1991. A year later, TWA filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. It emerged from bankruptcy but was soon back again for its round-trip visit. Let's call it Chapter 22. TWA never emerged. American bought its assets in bankruptcy. 
TWA had plenty of problems and never really found its footing in the newly deregulated airline industry. But you can also argue Icon killed it. One of the worst moves was an agreement where Carl Icahn agreed to forgive a $190 million loan he gave to TWA if a travel agency he owned could sell $610 million worth of tickets. The travel agency bought the tickets from TWA at 40% off the published fare, then sold them to the public at a 25% discount off published prices. Icahn's discounted tickets destroyed TWA yields and hurt the industry broadly. He took hundreds of millions of dollars out of the airline. TWA said $100 million a year for many years. He is roundly hated in the industry, especially by labor. And now, at 88 years old, he's back. From my vantage point, Ben, this is going to be very interesting to watch. JetBlue has to get back to profitability after four years of losses and figure out ways to profitably grow after losing out on spirit. I think Icon only wants to make money, and if he thinks Joanna's plan to cut costs and improve reliability is going to work, he'll be happy. But if it doesn't, he'll be plenty vocal about changes he wants made. He didn't seem to understand the airline industry well in the 1980s and 1990s, and who knows if he does today. But I think we're all going to find out. I know you can't comment, Ben. I will make this comment. Okay, great. The industry is in a very different place than 40 years ago. And I think so is Carl Icahn. Excellent. Well, that's good to hear. And I hope it, uh, hope it works out for, for JetBlue and for Carl Icahn. So the story I do want to mention was in The Atlantic which had a somewhat mind-numbing piece on carry-on baggage. The story set out to show airline malfeasance, but ended up with a rather silly suggestion that we just do away with carry-on baggage altogether. It plowed a lot of ground that was old. I covered a lot of this more than eight years ago when Boeing and Airbus first came out with big bins. This is a problem of airline making. Across the board, airlines added more seats to planes. But until big bins came out, they couldn't add more overhead bin space. So you had planes that, when full, never had any chance of accommodating all the carry-on bags. Airlines made the problem worse by instituting checked baggage fees and giving travelers a big incentive to carry the kitchen sink on board to avoid those fees. And then airlines monetized the problem by selling early boarding and making it a coveted perk of loyalty program status. The only real benefit of early boarding is getting space in the overhead bin. In 2015, Boeing introduced space bins. On a 737-900 with 181 seats at Alaska, the bins went from enough space for only 117 rollerboard bags to enough space for 174 rollerboard bags. Bags turned sideways. So if loaded properly, And if people follow the bag size limits, which they don't, there would be enough room for just about everyone to have a bag in the bin. American now has 80% of its narrow bodies with big bins. The big bins work, even Southwest, which has less of a problem than others because check bags fly free, is moving to install the big bins. 
Somehow the Atlantic piece discounts big bins and instead says we are in the midst of a carry-on baggage crisis. I'm not sure I see that. Yes, some people have to check their bag at the gate. Many people actually bring them to the gate to avoid check baggage fees. Airlines have gotten good at tagging bags at the gate, even when someone has to do the walk of shame back up the airplane aisle when everyone is seated because there's no room for that passenger's bag. And somehow, the Atlantic story moves towards saying we all would be better off without carry-on luggage. Not me. The story ends with this. Travelers ought to dream of a future without carry-on luggage rather than one that expands endlessly to contain it. So poppycock, I say, there are some big issues in air travel that deserve a lot of attention. I think airlines ought to put a price tag on how much air traffic control staffing shortages are costing them and costing travelers. It's serious and significant, and it's also fixable. The FAA and Congress and the White House need to get to work big time on air traffic control staffing and modernization. The two go hand in hand. Antiquated equipment forces more manpower because each controller can only handle fewer airplanes. And our friend David Grizzle, the former head of the FAA's air traffic organization, who has been involved in this issue for decades and co-wrote the recent Blue Ribbon study on air traffic control deficiencies for the FAA, points out that controller training suffers mightily because of the lack of modernization, because the FAA lacks simulators that can train and test new controllers. There's more. I think the government should revamp refund regulations because there was a whole lot of bad airline behavior during the pandemic. I think we should study arbitrary rules like the 1,500-hour experience requirement for first officers, which has fueled the pilot shortage. I think we need to get serious about reducing airplane carbon emissions because the industry is not going to meet its 2050 goal without some major government involvement. There are a lot of big issues facing commercial air travel. And if carry-on baggage is really a crisis proportion problem, then adopt the pay scheme you implemented at Spirit, Ben. Carry-on bags are more expensive than checked bags at Spirit, so the airline gives passengers a financial incentive to check bags. That greatly reduced the number of bags checked at the gate. As I recall, you shaved a good five minutes off each departure and grew the airline without the expense of buying as many new airplanes. I see a lot of media doing stories that get clicks and hits and show up in everyone's news feed because they have wild headlines or headlines that just uh, really hit at people. Don't we all hate airlines and check bags and fees and some toilet got clogged and travel is so horrible and we need to regulate the whole thing all over again and completely change all the rules? I just don't see it. Millions of people are getting where they want to go at darn cheap prices, and for the most part, at very reliable rates. Yes, we can do a lot better. Yes, we must do better now so that we can grow as well as improve. But let's stop focusing on the trivial and get serious about the big issues. Maybe I'm just the cranky one. Cranky for sure. (laughs) I think this is the case of simple economics. People respond to incentives if you're incented to bring on board. That's what you're going to do. 
I think carry-on fees make the most sense. Yeah, you may be right. I hate the thought, um, but I understand the the logic. You know, I think the the big bins are the better solution, and um, and enforcing the rules. I mean, there are size size rules, and I see people all the time with bags that are much too big. And so I'd I'd rather see the rules enforced first before everybody starts getting charged. But consider this: the big bins they weigh more, so they burn more fuel. Yeah. And that, look, that's that's the cost of doing business. I don't think it's fair for airlines to put 100 seats, 180 seats on a plane and only have room for 120 bags. Um, that that's you know, that's not fair to the traveler. I agree, but you can't say don't fly to save the planet. But if you do, give me a big bin. <laughs> yep. There are a lot of contradictions in this business, aren't there? <laughs> All right. There are no contradictions with our sponsors. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. We also want to thank Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P. And we want to thank Sirium. Sirium offers the most accurate and precise data and analytics to enable airlines to optimize planning, operations, and passenger services. The right intelligence drives operational efficiencies, enables you to predict market shifts, and helps airlines respond quickly to maximize revenue, manage costs, and seize commercial opportunity. Visit Sirium.com for more. And now, cranky as we are, let's bring in Brett Snyder, the real cranky flyer. Brett Snyder is the president and chief airline dork of Cranky Flyer LLC. He's a hero to many aviation geeks and a savvy observer of airlines and travel. Cranky Flyer not only is a well-read source of news and commentary for the industry, including the Cranky Network Weekly Competitive Network Analysis, but also a consumer air travel assistance service called Cranky Concierge. Brett worked in pricing at America West and was a marketing planning product manager at United. He was business director of travel at pricegrabber.com. His undergraduate degree is from George Washington University in marketing and tourism studies, of course, and he has an MBA from Stanford. 
Brett knows the business inside and out, and we're very pleased to have him on Airlines Confidential. So welcome, Brett. Tell us about Cranky Flyer and how it came about. Thanks, Scott. I, I I don't know that anyone's ever called me a hero before. I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> ah, I, no, I know many aviation geeks who worship you. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I just have fun with this stuff. So, But yeah, Cranky Flyer, I, I started writing back in 2006, and uh, it really came out of a couple of friends of mine who are not aviation geeks who said, you know, you have a lot of random information that someone might actually care about and uh, you should start writing about it. And so they kind of pushed me to, to set up the blog back then. And, you know, here we are, what, 18 years later, I guess, you know, that that's when it started. And then <laughs> Cranky Concierge started in 2009 and, you know, we've just kept adding and changing and doing different things along the way, whatever will uh, allow me to keep writing, basically. I love the name, Cranky, but why did you pick that? Why uh, not yeah. Happy? <laughs> so at the time, the, the friends who set this up for me, one of them, her nickname for me was Cranky Pants, and so she just kind of pushed forward with it. And I was like, yeah, that's a good name. I'll do it. I did think about changing it a few times because I do get people who come to me and say, well, why are you so cranky all the time? And and think that I'm writing like, you know, I'm, I'm a, a consumer blogger trying to help people who are mad at airlines. And I was like, well, that's not really what it is. But by the time I realized that maybe I should think about changing it, it was too late. So yeah. I just, <laughs> and so it is what it is. And you make, you make what you want of a name, right? Southwest flies to the Northeast. They didn't change their name. So true, true. So there's been a lot of attention lately on how bad flying has gotten and whether travel needs new regulation. What's your take on all this? Is flying really worse than it used to be? Say a lot of attention lately. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, well, there's, true. There's true. always attention on that. Yes, <laughs> true. I, you know, th- this is one of the the time honored traditions of how do we fix this? Because no matter what, you're going to have these problems, and some of it is just a fundamental issue that the air traffic control system has not kept pace. Capacity at big airports in big cities where demand keeps rising. It hasn't kept pace. And so there is this infrastructure issue that, you know, even if the airlines did everything right, people would still be complaining about it. Uh, And then, you know, you layer on top of that, the fact that of course things go wrong for airlines. You have mechanical issues, labor, uh, you know, you name it, whatever may happen. And, And and it's the factory the is outdoors. Be. Right. Everything is done outdoors. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, safety is paramount. I mean, you know, maybe you could have every flight go on time if uh, you had a whole bunch of extra airplanes and you never had to worry about anything else uh, like costs. And, you know, people could uh, could always fly on time everywhere they want to go and it would just cost them, you know, three times as much. So it's, it's always that delicate balance of what do you do? And from a regulatory standpoint, 
maybe there are some things that could be done, but I don't know that it's it's the kind of thing that's going to completely uh, revolutionize the travel experience. I think it's just the way it is uh, when it comes to air travel. So many factors that go into it, it's impossible to give a, uh, a, a an affordable, reasonable price to someone and and have it be 100% perfect every time. You know, Brett, what you say is right on. I also think that part of the issue is that air travel is what economists call an intermediate good. People are using it to get somewhere else. At Six Flags, for example, when people wait in line 10 minutes to ride a roller coaster, they say it's a better experience than when they walk right up because in that 10 minutes, they see people screaming They build up anticipation. A 10-minute wait in the airport, and that airline stinks. (laughs) (laughs) And so the answer, Ben, is more entertainment in the the hold rooms. (laughs) Oh, God. We don't need more CNN airport. (laughs) (laughs) I think there is something to that, though, right? When you see... That and a, a ten minute wait is different than a two hour wait. <laughs> so if if you have yeah. a two hour wait, people might feel differently. But there is something about building that anticipation and and all that. But yeah, I mean, I think you know that is one of the problems about this is at Six Flags, people want to go on that roller coaster, and at the airport, people just want to get to the other side. They, they don't want to get on the airplane. They want to be on the beach or they want to be wherever they're going. And so it's just a, it, it's, I mean, you know, present company accepted here where maybe we actually <laughs> look forward to that part of it. Most people just want to get to where they're going. And this is just something that stands in their way. That's right. So if you could really change one thing, what would it be? One thing. Oh my gosh. I you know, I to me the one thing that I think would help more than anything is just better communication and information uh, about when there are delays, when there are issues, keeping people better informed. And I know United's done a lot with that, with their flight status work, where they're trying to keep people better informed than just saying flight is delayed. Uh, And, you know, I think that would go a long way to helping people feel more comfortable and more certain about what actually is going on and when they're going to get out of there. That's probably the first thing that I would change. What I like about that is that it could be done. Yeah, right. I mean, it, you know, I, I could say, uh, I could say, well, the one thing I would change is eliminate delays. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. but no more yeah, better fares. communication. Yeah. Or make that. all the fares cheap. Right. 
Well, you could do that. <laughs> it made for a month. <laughs> yeah, it depends how much cash you have to burn. <laughs> well, um, you analyze Spirit's announced plan, and and, and Spirit um, has really made has had fares too cheap for four years. Right, they've lost money for for four years. So they announced a plan to get back to profitability. And we thought, both Ben and I thought you had really good analysis of this. Spirit says it will reduce unprofitable flying and increase flying from Fort Lauderdale and cross its fingers on some other major points like domestic demand increasing and air traffic control improving and Pratt & Whitney compensating Spirit for engine repairs that are grounding airplanes. Tell us what you thought of the the Spirit turnaround plan. Can can we call it a turnaround plan? But, <laughs> it just seems right, like the, something they threw together the, the night before the earnings call. I don't know. Brett, Brett tell us what you thought of the Spirit <laughs> statement. Yeah. I mean that that's that's what what bugged me about it. It was pretty light on anything, and it, it's not like they haven't had plenty of time to prepare for this. I mean, it, it seems like. You know, they they went to the different groups and said, "Okay, everybody, tell us what we should do." And the only one who responded was John Kirby in uh, in the network team and said, "Well, how about this?" And they they kind of went forward with that, and everything else was just let's rely on everybody else, which that's not a great plan. I mean, yes, they they will get paid by Pratt and Whitney at some point, but you know, when they talk about how this summer is going to improve, they include that in their guidance, which I don't know. I mean, that doesn't really seem like you've fixed anything. It just means you got paid for something as a one-off situation. And, you know, waiting for air traffic control to get better. We've been waiting for a long time. Uh, I don't know that that's going to solve it. Um, And, you know, the demand environment is what it is. You can certainly move your capacity around, which is what they're doing, but it's a lot of reliance upon what others do. And that is just not what I would want to see from an airline that seems to have more urgent needs to fix things. I don't want to just pile on. But they also never mentioned that next year they have a billion dollars to pay back for their loyalty bonds. Well, they, yeah, and what, they have a billion dollars in the bank right now, I think, and then, or just under, and they still, I mean, they listed some of the stuff they can monetize if they need to, to raise the cash and and maybe they can do that and, and make it work. But ultimately, the goal should be to not do that and to actually start generating cash from the operation instead. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of I mean, you need that runway to have the access to cash. But but I it just seems like there's got to be more to this. And maybe to be fair, maybe they're just not telling us they have a bigger plan and they're just not saying it. But. Uh, I don't know why you wouldn't want to say it. Well, I think we'll know quickly because they they said they would get back to positive cash flow in the second second quarter or by summer or so. Now, yeah, now, but that's so, including the Pratt stuff, right? And and summer summer you darn well better be positive cash flow. It, it really matters what happens in the in the winter or the well, fall. 
Yeah, I mean, it depends. You know, ULCC is. I mean, if you're Sun Country, Q1 is your is your money maker, right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone's. I mean, there there's Florida. Orlando's obviously been a problem. Las Vegas has been a problem. And so the network is a big part of it. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be doing network. I just, I'd like to see more to it. But um, but I, I'm really curious to see what they do because, you know, Spirit for so long has been the ULCC that does daily flying, that does uh, more frequency than a Frontier or an Allegiant. And now they're doing a lot more sub-daily pulling down an off peak, uh, things like that. And, you know, does that keep them in the same markets? Does it put them squarely uh, up against some of these other guys more? I'm not sure uh, exactly where that goes, but, you know, they they need to do something. Um, So we'll see where that is. So if this plan is light, what do you think? really happens with them i mean i don't know i they they do have i think plenty of cash more so than you know some of the people that may be talking about imminent bankruptcy i think they do have time uh but you know this this is where you get into this this uh call it what you will a doom spiral or something where whatever spirit does then you know, the others smell blood in the water and may just go sit on them, which is what I think Frontier has been doing with some of their stuff, uh, you know, going into markets like Charlotte, where Spirit, that's one of Spirit's uh, few growth markets lately. And Frontier went and, you know, built up a little bit there. Uh, it, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see the the legacies dump some capacity into Fort Lauderdale, uh, bigger airplanes, whatever. If they can turn the screws, then they will. If they think that there's a short-term opportunity to get rid of a competitor, so I think a lot of it depends on competitive response and and what they can get away with. Frontiers lost money for four years as well. Why? Take a step back, a little bit bigger picture. Why are the low-cost carriers struggling so much? It used to be that in a commodity business, the low-cost producer would win. Um, what's going on here? Well, you know, this this is, uh, I think we have a couple of issues here that are going on. And one of those issues is that the there's just too much capacity in some of these markets. And some of that is because of the ultra low cost carriers, but some of it's also the big guys that, you know, it's total capacity that matters. And when that happens, uh, you know, if, if you listen to some of the legacies, they say, well, they'll, people will choose us every time if they have the choice and fares have been down and, and that's, uh, been fine for the legacies. They're not down as much as they are for the ULCCs. But I think that's the other piece of this is that, the ULCCs make so much money on ancillaries that they need to just get people on the airplane. And that means they have to get really aggressive to fill those seats when there's too much capacity. And the legacies are somewhat shielded from that. They don't have to go as low, or if they even get lower, they use basic economy and something like that. But, you know, if you're the ULCCs and you're running all these airplanes in Orlando, 
you need people on those planes because you can't just say, well, I'll charge a higher fare and go half full because then you're losing all that ancillary revenue from those empty seats. And so they just have a different incentive that they have to put people on those airplanes. And I, I think they just got caught with having too many airplanes in the wrong places where there was too much capacity. I think you're right. We used to say MTCs don't check bags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. And those bag fees are very high now. <laughs> Same with seat assignments and everything else. It's, uh, they just, they have to fill them. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think, you know, they probably got caught up in the same thing that everyone else did, thinking that Orlando could never have too much capacity. And then Orlando had too much capacity. <laughs> so here we are. One other comment, Brad, that I'd like your reaction to. I thought it strange that they would say trim unprofitable fine as part of a plan. Isn't that part of normal business? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think it, uh, for ULCCs, that is part of normal business, right? Uh, I mean, you obviously know this well, but maybe from a legacy mindset, you could argue that there's a strategic value and you need to stay in a city or do something. But from a ULCC perspective, that's never really been how it's gone. It's, you know, do these routes work? Great, let's fly them. If they don't, let's not. And I I also find it strange about trim unprofitable flying you know, that this goes back into what we were talking about earlier about off peak. So it may not be trimming routes or cities or something like that. It may just be day of week and things like that, which it, it makes some sense. But on the other hand, these are new airplanes. They're expensive airplanes. This is not Allegiant. You can't sit these airplanes on Tuesday and Wednesday and be fine with it, especially since, you know, they, they talk about the need to get their fleet utilization up. And so I, I don't really understand how those two things work together if you're going to cut your off-peak flying and get your fleet utilization back to where it was. I, I just am I'm not clear on what they can do with those airplanes on Tuesdays and Wednesdays uh, other than park them and wait for Pratt to fix them. Uh, but I, I just I'm not quite sure how this all comes together. Well, the strategic flying thing is is interesting, and I've I've always wondered about that. You hear that a lot from from airlines, and you think, is the strategy to lose money? Is is that your strategy that that you're protecting this from? Uh, I mean, I understand investing in building building a route, building a market, and all that, but there there comes a time when if it's not working, you got to stop. You know, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's how you look at it, right? If if you're American Airlines, you make your money on credit cards. So <laughs> fly the right. airplanes where you can get more credit card signups. <laughs> I mean, it, it may not, you know, it's a different thing. I mean, I, it, it's a far cry from, you know, back in, in the 90s where United flew JFK Hong Kong, like ridiculous prestige routes that lose millions and millions of dollars. But you can see how some of these legacies might say, well, we need to stay in this market because there's a strategic rationale or whatever it might be. Um, 
But someone like Spirit, which, you know, use a real example when they recently, when was that a couple months ago, they pulled out of Denver, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they don't need to be in Denver. Yeah, it's a big city, but it's a very competitive city. And they're, you know, they don't need to be there. Uh, and so, you know, they walked away. It was a good move for, for the time they're in right now. But I think as a ULCC, especially one that's been losing money for so long, that's that's in in distress, you need to make those decisions sooner rather than later. And you really can't play the strategy game uh, for long term here. You need to keep cash in the door. Right. And for the legacy airlines, if the strategy is increase credit card signups, get people into the loyalty program, that's where your profits are coming from. Then those routes aren't necessarily money losers um, because you are getting the credit card um, revenue. And, and and to me, that's that's a lot of this. The, the, the legacy airlines have sat on top of the ULCCs in a lot of leisure markets. And they've made it work with basic economy fares and with credit card profits. Yeah, they, they're just this is why, you know, average fare is uh, is not everything it, it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. You know, if you're average fare for a legacy, then you're not including things like credit card revenues and, and whatever. And if it's average fare for uh, ULCC, you're not including ancillaries. Totally different things. Uh, but you know, both important to the revenue picture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Brett, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, and, uh, and, and thanks so much for, for cranky. We all enjoy it and, uh, and appreciate what you do. So great to talk to you and we look forward to a lot more. Sounds good. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's nice to be on with you both. Hey, before you go, yeah, tell the few listeners who don't know you, how to find you. Well, my address is, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you, you can find me online. Uh, crankyflyer.com is where I write about the industry. Uh, you can sign up for emails there too if you want to get it in your inbox. Uh, crankyconcierge.com is our air travel assistance site. Uh, come on in there. And uh, if uh, I'd, I'd try not to do as as much uh, on social media as I can, but I am on Twitter at Cranky Flyer, or I'm sorry, I'm on X at Cranky Flyer, and uh, those are the best ways to find me. Terrific! Thanks so much, Brett. We'll be back with more on Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by thearchive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard thearchive.net. Thanks again to Brett for a fun, if cranky, <laughs> discussion. Yeah. Ben, I want to remind listeners that Airlines Confidential will be on stage for a keynote podcast at Aviation Festival Americas on May 15th in Miami Beach. This is the 16th year for Aviation Festival Americas, and it brings together more than 250 influential leaders from the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you'd like to attend, listeners can get a 50% discount by going to airlinesconfidential.com, clicking on the Aviation Festival banner ad, and using the promo code AC50. That's the letter A, the letter C, five, zero. 
It's going to be a great event, and we are looking forward to being part of it. Okay, on to the mailbag. And Ben, it's full. First, a listener who wants to be known only as Skip Lagger Wannabe in order to protect the wannabe guilty, asks the following. Scott and Ben, I need your help understanding airlines' pricing logic. Last summer, a 17-year-old was not allowed to board a flight between Gainesville, Florida, and Charlotte, North Carolina, because American thought he wouldn't complete his full-purchase trip to New York City to take advantage of the fact that it was cheaper to New York City, connecting through Charlotte, than it was to fly just to Charlotte. The same thing happened to me when looking at a recent booking. Flying to Charlotte was more expensive than flying through Charlotte. I didn't skip lag. The problem, as you well know, isn't limited to American Airlines. How is this pricing structure even possible? How can someone purchase more of a product and it actually be cheaper? And could this practice ever be something the Department of Transportation looks at as it tries to get rid of junk fees in the airline industry? This just doesn't seem right for passengers. Well, wannabe, it's supply and demand. Not much competition to Charlotte, but lots to New York. Think about it this way. Do you ever buy Drop 50 at the grocery store? It's half orange juice, half water, and costs more than a full bottle of orange juice. (laughs) I do think, Ben, that it's unfair for an airline to penalize a customer just for not using all the products sold. And by the way, while I'm cranky, I hate that new word skip lag. It, it's, it comes from skipping a leg. So if anything, it should be skip legger, not skip lagger. Um, but um, I just think this is um, a, a new word to uh, yet again gain clicks and get attention. This has been around a long time. Anyway, if you buy a Happy Meal because it's cheaper... I shouldn't be penalized because I didn't eat the French fries, right? It's like your orange juice comparison. If I buy a coat and have it shortened, the manufacturer doesn't get angry because I didn't use exactly what I purchased. So Americans shouldn't be in the business of deciding whether I'm going to eat the fries or alter the coat or use the full ticket it sold me. And frankly, since airlines overbook, they already have a mechanism to protect themselves if that seat ends up empty because you didn't go to New York. The flight is going whether I sit in my seat or not. I paid my fare. The airline sure isn't refunding the ticket. So how is the airline disadvantaged if I go to Charlotte and don't take my flight to New York? Airlines created the crazy pricing system, and they should have to live with it. If airline ticket pricing was simpler, There wouldn't be tricks and traps like this. I agree, Scott. The airline sold them that price, so they should honor it. That said, they have another way to respond. If he didn't check in in New York for the return, they would cancel his Charlotte, Florida flight. Right. If you're going to play the game, you got to play it on one-way tickets. 
or, really? or at least only on the return of your ticket. Yeah, no, I, I just think the problem with the whole thing was was what, what Wannabe said at the beginning. Um, please explain airlines pricing logic. And, and sometimes there isn't a whole lot of logic, uh, but it, it is, you know, as you said, it's supply and demand. Um, and sometimes this works in travelers' favor too, right? It's generally considered to be less convenient to take a connecting flight over a direct flight. So it used to be that connecting flights were priced cheaper than than one-way flights um, simply because of the added convenience of the nonstop. Well, the people who decide if airlines should merge or not should know that this issue only exists when airlines have really dominant positions in their hub. You never see this on LCCs. Yep, that's a great point. Uh, the bottom line to all this is prices are high in Charlotte, right? And in Detroit, Minneapolis, and more. Yeah. Okay, Ben, listener Joe asks a question for you. Hi, Ben. Hope you are well. I am curious about why Spirit decided to make the A319 the main aircraft to fly routes between 2005 and 2016. Second, have you thought about TikTok live streaming? I guess he means the podcast. And last, when do you think a Gen Z would be a CEO of an airline? So I'll jump in on that last one first. Gen Z is generally considered to be born between 1996 or 1997 and 2010 to 12. So the older Gen Zers are in their late 20s right now. I'd say 10 to 15 years. I think there will be new airline models, new startups, new technologies for travel, and we'll see people in their 30s and 40s leading innovative companies in air travel. So that would be my guess, 10 years or so. So Ben, how about that little tiny A319 at Spirit? Well, it's simple. It was the plane they had the most of <laughs> then. <laughs> Spear, when I got there, had only 319s and 321s on order. It took a while for them to order and have delivered the 320. So the three, 320 would have been your preference. It's a, it's, it's a bigger plane, a little more economical, but you got more seats to sell. And the 19 could fly further. For example, for Lauderdale to Lima, couldn't be flown on an original 320, hmm. but could on a 19. Interesting. And let me add to listener Joe's question um, that I don't think we're going to live stream the podcast on TikTok. But we have talked about a newsletter, and I'm curious what listeners think. I know some of you may want to share some of the content from the podcast with your teams or bosses or family members. And that's hard to do when it's audio only. So we're thinking about how we might best do that and curious if there are any good ideas 
or best practices or suggestions out there. Please let us know. Well, that's all for another episode of Airlines Confidential. Thanks again to that cranky Brett Snyder. We'll be back next week with less crankiness and much more happiness. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.